0: This is a reading of the word. Revelation 7. After I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, or the sea, or the trees, until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard from the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi. 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, and 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then when one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them... White in the blood of the Lamb, therefore they they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple, and He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their Shepherd, and He will guide them to spring of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. All right,
1: thanks. You may be seated. Just so you want to remember, this morning we're somewhat of a divided congregation. Whether uh, We're worshiping here. Uh, a sizable portion of us are worshiping on the uh, youth retreat up at uh, Camp Orchard Hill. One of our teenagers headed up there with all of our youth staff and whatnot on Friday afternoon, driving back home later this afternoon. So we'll certainly pray for uh, safe travels for them. But just also remember that uh, even when we're apart, the Spirit unites us together and we worship together as one, one body and one family. Um. So as we get into uh, our our passage this morning, uh, I think I've shared with you a few times some of the adventures that Josiah and Kessler, uh, Josiah Kessler and I go on, food adventures. Uh, We like to find uh, good food and and enjoy it together. Uh, And lately, Charlie Gove has been coming along with us as well, too. And so we went out this past week. Uh, found, uh, we went and hunt a barbecue. We didn't have a whole lot of time on our hands. So we didn't have to drive. We didn't have time to drive around looking for a good authentic barbecue place. We went to Mission Barbecue up here in Springfield, which was fine. It was decent. Uh, and we let the dads come along this time. So uh, Mark and Jeff were there. I brought little Jeffrey as well uh, along with us. And we just had a great time eating barbecue together, chatting. And uh, towards the end of the meal, end of the conversation, uh, there were kind of two threads of conversation going on, especially between some of the adults here, and I think, well, anyway, we were, were talking a little bit about kind of the shaky uncertainty, like, in the world today, and pr- as, particularly as it relates to economic issues. Which is usually where I'm just sitting there eating my barbecue and nodding because I don't know anything about economics. But we were sitting there talking just about a little bit of the economic uncertainty that exists out there, whether it's through rising inflation or it's because of, you know, global events that are going on that are causing things to be a little bit uncertain and shaky and all that. So that was one part of the conversation. Uh, the other part of the conversation that we were talking a bit about was, uh, Mark and Beth's, uh, plans to open up a coffee shop that will be staffed uh, largely by, you know, people who have certain uh, disabilities or handicaps or whatever. God has just placed this burden on their heart, uh, something they feel very very passionate about and feel led to do. And, you know, I was thinking about that conversation uh, later on, uh, maybe as I was driving home, just thinking that like, that's sort of a weird conversation when you think about it. Right, because normally when, or that's not how you would expect a conversation like that to go, like moving from uncertainty to this new way of spending retirement on this, you know, kind of new adventure in deeper pursuit of the kingdom, right? Because usually when, you know, we think of things being uncertain or just a little shaky or tumultuous in life, right, that tends to be the time where we play a little bit more safe or we get a little bit more conservative or we hold just a little bit tighter uh, to the things that are very precious to us in life, right? Right, Because the question becomes, okay, in this uncertain, shaky, tumultuous time, if I if I press deeper into the kingdom, or if I press deeper into the mission that Christ has for me, or if I press deeper into what it means to be more like Jesus in all of his love and generosity and sacrificial self-giving, Or if I press deeper into what Mike prayed about, which is our privilege to deny ourselves and to pick up our cross and follow him, right? And if I do that in unshaky, uncertain, tumultuous times, the question is, okay, what, what happens to me on the back end of all that, right? Or if you're part of the ancient church to whom this letter of revelation is written to, they're asking something of a similar question. As pressures to conform to the Roman way of life and religion are intensifying, and as opposition to the way of Christ and to his church is increasing, whether it's from local government officials or whether it's from the local neighborhood or from your family or from your workplace or whatever, right? That question has to be Coming to mind. Okay, so if I press deeper into the kingdom right now, and if I live more with, without abandon for Christ, if I, if I take up my calling as his servant and as his mission agent, and if I live more sacrificially the way Christ, like what exactly happens to me in this world of hostility? And I think this is part of the question that chapter seven is answering for us this morning. Uh, if you're new with us here this morning, uh, we've been working our way through the book of Revelation, which is this incredible book. It's really one of the more incredible pieces of literature all, from all the ancient world. It's incredibly artistic. Uh, it's incredibly poetic. And it's very, very symbolic. Its whole goal is through rich symbols and imagery uh, to give us a picture of life and history between the resurrection of Jesus and that day when he returns to complete his operation of redemption and new creation, All right? It gives us this very symbolic look at what we can expect of life in the, in between. Okay, and if you have been tracking with us, you know that we've been talking about how Revelation doesn't just give us one glimpse into that, but it gives us multiple pictures or multiple symbolic visions, multiple cycles that look at that period of time between the resurrection and new creation. You know, from slightly different angles and different perspectives. I'm recapping here a little bit because it's been three weeks now because we took a little break there over Holy Week. But three weeks ago, we started in on one of those visions and one of those cycles looking at that span of history in chapter 6 and the opening of the seven seals on that scroll of history. Right, And if you remember, the thing that we saw was that as these seals are being opened and the scroll is being unrolled, it's not exactly a very pleasant picture All right the first seal comes off and out comes this rider on a white horse who's given permission to conquer and sees conquest over lands and people and territories and nations and the second seal opens up and out comes a rider uh, on a on a red horse who's given permission to take peace from the earth as the earth plunges into warfare People versus one another. And then the third seal opens and out comes a rider on a white horse, uh, who's, you know, unleashing all sorts of economic injustice and high prices and famine, uh, for the common ordinary people. And then out comes, you know, or the fourth seal is popped open and out comes, you know, this pale rider who just has behind him this, this wake of death. And we talked about how Okay, for the ancient church, maybe part of the temptation in the midst of Rome would be to look at the glory of Rome and all of its power and all of its might and its glitz and glamour and to be enamored by that. And to hear, you know, the great gospel of Rome, the Evangelion, the Pax Romana, right? That wherever Rome goes, it extends peace throughout the earth. And you might be tempted to, again, admire that, dare we say, worship that. What's the goal of these opening seals well it's actually to pull the curtain back and actually show that behind all this that you're tempted to bow down and worship it's just this wake of conquest civil war famine injustice and death again not a particularly pretty picture the fifth seal opens up, and we see the, the martyrs around the throne in heaven crying out to the Lord, Oh, Lord, how faithful and true until you judge the earth and avenge all that's been done wrong to your people. And God tells them to wait just a little bit. And then comes the sixth seal, right? Or essentially to wait until that sixth seal, which pops open, which is the coming of the great day of the Lord. The day when the creator is coming back. In all of His glory and all of His fury, as well too, to reclaim His creation from kingdoms and empires and kings and servants who have wreaked their havoc throughout His creation. He's coming to judge it, to declare what is right, to declare what is wrong, to purge His creation from all that that take and abuse it and use it on according to their own terms and wreak their havoc throughout it. Okay. So that's sort of like one glimpse into that picture. But then the question is left. Okay, so in the midst of all that turmoil and in the midst of all that, you know, death and warfare and violence and injustice, like what happens to God's people in the midst of all that? That might have been one of the burning questions. And I think that's part of the question uh, that chapter 7 aims to answer for us. Uh, If by chance you watch some of those extra cutting room floor videos where I put some extra tidbits in there about the book of Revelation, I talked in the last one about how, you know, some of these cycles and visions, they follow a similar pattern where you get the first six of the cycle. And then there's like a pause and you have an interlude which is where we are now, chapter 7. It's this pause, it's this in, in pause break in the action in the interlude, which gives us a glimpse into what's going on in God's people and actually gives us a word of promise to God's people before we pick up the seventh seal. And you'll see this cycle unfold in the next cycles, you know, and so forth. We'll get there when we get there. Okay, but we're in this interlude that's answering this question, what happens to God's people? And it does it in two ways. It gives us two visions uh, basically, about the family of God in the midst and through all of this. All right, and to get at the first vision, uh, you got to track with me here. I know that sun's beating down on you, and you're probably just very relaxed and comfortable. <laughs> but there's a couple rich symbols here. Did I get here an amen over there, Kathy? <laughs> no, but there's some really uh, rich symbols in this first vision that we have to dive in and unpack just a little bit to see what's going on here. Okay. So here's the action, right? You've got this angel, there are these four angels that go out to the four corners of the earth and they're holding back the four winds from blowing across the face of the earth. And so the question is, okay, what are these four winds that are about to blow havoc across the earth? Okay, and to get at that, you have to remember Again, a little bit of what apocalyptic literature does, very symbolic stuff. And apocalyptic literature tends to borrow images from other material or literature that would have been familiar to the people, right? And so Revelation does us a whole lot. It is constantly borrowing images from the Old Testament, from Daniel, from Ezekiel. And one of the books that it borrows a whole lot from is the book of Zechariah. Zechariah is another book that's largely apocalyptic, full of These visions that come to Zechariah in the nighttime. And in chapter 6 of Zechariah, he has one of these night visions of these four chariots being pulled by horses coming out of heaven. And the first chariot is pulled by horses that are all red. Second chariot comes out, it's pulled by horses that are all black second third horse chariot comes out it's pulled by horses that are all white and the fourth one comes out a little bit of a variance here but is pulled by horses that are all speckled okay but the point is right this sounds familiar this looks a little bit like the beginning of chapter six in revelation all right it's probably an example where he's borrowing from the book of Zechariah and why this is so important is if you go into chapter six Zechariah says to one of the angels hey what are these chariots being pulled by these horses with their different colors? And the angel says, these are the four winds. that present themselves before the Lord Almighty and then blow across the four corners of the earth. So we could dive into this a little bit more. I could show you some other places where these four winds show up in the Old Testament. But suffice it to say that I think Revelation is borrowing uh, from what Zechariah does. And so in Basically, these four winds are synonymous with these first four riders coming out on the black, red, white, and pale horses that are coming out. Or in other words, what you have in chapter 7 is we're actually going back just a little bit before those seals are open and those riders come out unleashing their death, injustice, warfare, violence. And the angel said, yeah, hold on just one second. We're going to go seal 144,000 people. We're going to go stamp on their forehead the seal of God on 144,000 people. Okay, so the second imagery here is, what's the deal with that 144,000? Who are they? Uh, And if you know your Old Testament, you saw the breakdown of, you know, those 12 tribes there. Those names probably sound familiar as the tribes of the sons of Jacob. Actually, it's not entirely the sons of Jacob. Dan is excluded there for reasons we can't get into now. And Manasseh is brought in. But you got 12,000 from each of these 12 sons of Jacob compiling this 144,000. So who are these people? And there's two ways of looking at this. One, you could say, well, you could look at it quite literally and say, well, these are 12,000 people. Israelites from each of the tribes of Jacob so 144,000 Israelites here Jewish people are being stamped on the forehead with a seal of God or uh, the other way of looking at it is to see very symbolically and this company of people is a symbolic representation of the fullness of God's people and maybe you can guess by now uh, my view is to take the more symbolic approach And I'll give you a couple of just quick reasons why. First of all, that's what, again, apocalyptic literature does. It presents things very symbolically. And so I actually actually feel on more shaky ground when I want to interpret things overly literally. You have to give credence to these symbols. And you have to figure out, okay, what do we do with numbers and names and places and people in here? Throughout the book of Revelation, number 12 shows up quite a bit. The number 1,000 Shows up a couple times. It's very important. And so it's probably, in my view, when you have 12 times 12 times a 1,000, this is probably a symbolic representation of the fullness of God's people. Another reason why I look at it that way is actually if you flip ahead to chapter 14, you'll actually see this 144,000 show up again. And there, they're actually described as people from all the inhabitants of the earth. Or even if you look in our own chapter, right? Notice what happens here. John hears about 144,000 who are being sealed. And then he turns and he looks. And in the very next verse, he sees people from every tongue, tribe, and nation gathered around the throne. Okay, you still with me? Think about this. When have we seen that before? Where John hears one thing and he turns and he sees something slightly different. I can't hear I see it. Do anybody remember that from chapter five? Remember that from chapter five where God where, where John hears of the lamb of the lion or sorry of the lion of the tribe of Judah who is coming to unlock the scrolls. He turns to look at this lion and he sees a lamb looking as though it had been slain. I think another a similar thing is going on here, where John hears the twelve thousand from each of the twelve tribes, the family of God, are being sealed, and then he turns and looks, and he actually sees people from every tongue, tribe, and nation gathered around the throne and celebrating. Uh, there's a lot more that we could. I could give you plenty more reasons. Uh, but I'm not going to do that for the sake of time. Instead, that'll probably be in the video for this coming week. And I'm going to do that because it's actually an important interpretive point for the book of Revelation. But if you don't care, don't worry about it. If you do care, it'll be in the video <laughs> Looking, moving forward. Okay, so the last symbol then we have to talk about is this seal. What is, it, what is this seal and what does it mean that God's people are being sealed on the forehead? Basically, this is one is the probably the simplest one in the ancient world to seal something mean to claim ownership of it says so is to claim that it belongs to you and you intend to keep it and to take possession of it and If you go home this afternoon and perhaps you've bought for yourself a particular snack that you intend to enjoy later in the evening or maybe later on in the week, and you know that in your house are a bunch of people who usually form a feeding frenzy around snacks. Right. You might take that snack and hide it up in the top cupboard, or you might tuck it away deep behind in the back of the refrigerator, and you might put a sticky note on it that says, this is the property in possession of daddy or mommy. To open and to consume is to accrue a sentence of death. Be ye therefore forewarned. Right. In other words, you're putting a seal your own seal upon that, to say, this is mine, I've retained ownership of it, and I intend to keep it and use it according to my purposes. And that's the picture. That's what it means, that God is sealing his people, his family. He's saying to them, these belong to me. I I intend to keep them, to guard them, and to use them according to my purposes and my promises. Right, so if you put this all together, do you see actually this is a pretty, pretty beautiful picture? That before these four riders come out, unleashing conquest, and war, and injustice, and death, well, we first have these angels holding them back, saying, "Well, hold on a second. First of all, I'm going go, we're going to go and we're going to seal God's people." We're going to seal them with this mark that identifies them as belonging to God, that identifies that he is going to guard them, he's going to keep them, and he is going to secure them according to his purposes. That's actually really good news. Right? Because if you read through the rest of the book of Revelation, and as that curtain is being pulled back on life, right, you're going to see some... <laughs> Unpleasant things, some scary things, some monsters and some beasts and some dragons, right? That have influence over the affairs of life. Or, you know, you think through the way Apostle Paul will talk about this and say in the book of Ephesians, you know, brothers and sisters, remember our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against these strange characters, these rulers and authorities and powers and principalities, these spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly places that wreak havoc throughout God's creation. Right. And if that's true, if behind all the shakiness and the uncertainty and the tumultuous of life are these shady characters and these scary figures, these spiritual forces of darkness that war against God and his people. Okay. So then the obvious question is, well, who am I to stand up under that? A wet noodle has a better chance of standing up in a windstorm than I have standing up under that, right? Because there are pressures in this world that would lead me to compromise. There are temptations that would tempt my heart to sin. There are things in my own heart that the enemy would love to seize hold of and to manipulate to wreak havoc in my life and my relationships and my walk with Christ. So who in the world am I to stand up against these spiritual forces of opposition? The great news is, yeah you're nobody (laughs) and you can't stand up against that on your own. But the good news is that the lamb has, the lamb has overcome and then in manifest of his victory, he's coming and he's stamping and he's sealing his people to guard them and to keep them. Mind you, not necessarily from experiencing the effects of the brokenness and some of that injustice and violence and warfare and unrest, right? But to keep them through that, Or to keep them spiritually through that, right? Or again, as Paul would say in the beginning of that book to the church in Ephesus, uh, you have been sealed by his spirit, which is the guarantee of our inheritance given to us until we acquire full possession of it. Meaning until we acquire full possession of this incredible inheritance that God has for us. In the meantime, he has sealed us with his spirit to keep us through whatever comes until we attain full possession of it. Uh, Last week in the Easter sermon, uh, there was one little episode or one little conversation in the John passage that I wanted to get to, but we didn't have enough time. And so it got scrapped. But it's this conversation that Jesus has with Mary when he sees her outside of the tomb. And when she realizes who it is, right, she runs to him. She longs to cling to him. And Jesus says to her, Mary, don't cling to me yet because I haven't ascended to the Father. (laughs) <laughs> which seems like something, of a maybe a little, like a little bit of an odd statement to say, or almost seems like something cold to say, Mary, you know, don't cling to me just yet. Until you read it in the context of the whole book of John, where Jesus has said multiple times to his disciples, okay, not only am I going to suffer and die and then raise Victoria, be raised victorious over the powers of sin and death, but I'm also going to ascend to the Father. And when I do... And this relationship between you and me is going to get a whole lot better because I am going to send my own spirit to be with you. My own spirit to unite you to me, to draw you deeper in relationship with me, to uh, to feed and to nourish you, to teach you, to convict you, and to hold you and to keep you. Right, or as Paul will say it again, and maybe in the letter that he writes to the church in Corinth in Second Corinthians chapter one, you know, he says that that God calls us to be established, or quite literally, it causes us to stand firm in Christ. You have been anointed, he says. You have been sealed, he says, and you have been entrusted with His Holy Spirit, who is your guarantee. If you have the Spirit of a Living Christ with you, you have the guarantee of God's promises to you. Isn't that great news? Amen. Right? It's like the old hymn says, how firm a foundation. That soul that on Jesus has leaned for rest and repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That, whole, that soul, though all hell, should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Right? And that's that's the wonderful picture of this first vision. Just before. These riders come unleashing hell. First, we're going to seal God's people. Not going to pull them out of it. Not going to just fully liberate, uh, you know, uh, keep them from this brokenness. But we're going to keep them through it. Until we get to the second vision, or the second part of this vision. Where now John, again, he sees people from every tongue, tribe, and nation gathered around the throne. And we're told these are the people who have made it through the trials and the tribulation of life and of history. And they're gathered around that throne and they're doing two things. First of all, they're standing, <laughs> which, which I like that picture, right? They're, they're standing there. The pressures of the world, the temptations to sin, the things that were not right in their own heart. Uh, they haven't knocked them down, but they're standing on their two feet in front of the throne. Not because of their own victory. Not because they were strong enough to overcome that in and of themselves, but because of the victory of the Lamb. That's why they have palm branches. Did you pick that up? Do you remember when we talked about the palm branches on Palm Sunday? About how palm branches, going all the way back to the times of Judas Maccabeus and the Maccabean revolt, became the symbol of the victory of the king. All right? So you got God's people that are standing there after they've come through the trials and tribulations of life. This is probably now towards the end part of history, and they're standing around the throne, standing on their two feet, haven't been knocked down, and they're holding in their hands these palm branches, celebrating the victory of the king. The other thing that's neat about that part about them standing around the throne uh, is that actually the end of chapter 6, do you remember, it, it, it ends with another question. Right, that sixth seal is opened, the sun and the moon go dark, the stars fall from the sky, the earth trembles, for the great day of God has come. And the people see it, the kings, the rulers, the servants, they see it and they run and hide into the caves and they fall, and they pray that the rocks will fall on them, because who can you know, who can stand? Literally, is the question. Who can stand in the great day of the Lord? And that's the question that kind of lingers as you move into chapter seven. Well, and here's part of the answer. Who can stand in the great day of the Lord? Well, it's God's people. Those sealed according to his promise can stand in the great day of the Lord. Which is something of an odd thing when you consider that, okay, these people, this family of God, they're not exactly perfect, you know, or didn't live life all fully sanctified, but actually they live life participating with some of the brokenness in the world? They live life participating with the spiritual forces of darkness and their intention to wage war against God. Or they live life participating in the sinful things that bring dishonor to God, that violate his intentions and purposes. In other words, these people are sinners just as much as everybody else. And so what right, what business do they have standing before the throne? I think the answer for that comes when you look at their garments. Text says they're wearing white garments, which again could have been white as a color of victory. But actually, we read a little bit later on towards the end of the chapter that those garments, whatever they were previously, they have been washed as they were dipped in the blood of the lamb. All right. So they, the sense is that they weren't always white, but they have been white. They've become white as they have been dipped in the blood of the lamb. Right, which is just presenting for us this great good news of the whole Bible, that God is compassionate, that he is patient and long-suffering, overflowing with mercy and graciousness towards sinners, so much so that he would send his son, he would put forth his son to suffer and die, not just to defeat the powers of death, but also so that he might make atonement or provide cleansing, for his sinful people, right? That is, he's suffering and he's dying. The weight of the world's sin is being placed upon him. My sin, your sin, is being placed upon him. He's suffering its full curse, its full consequence, its full stain. It's plunging him into death, and he's suffering. That's so that you and I don't have to eternally, right? And so these are people who, in faith, have dipped their garments and wash their garments white in the victorious blood of this lamb. And because of that, and because of that alone, they're enabled to stand around the throne and wave their palm branches and join in the whole company of heaven and singing with a loud voice, salvation belongs not to us, but to you, the one who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And and it's like the, the beauty of this picture just keeps going because we're told that, The presence of the glory of the one on the throne shelters them as they're around there. Actually, quite literally, the word in the Greek there is that God tabernacles about them or above them or around them or through them. He's tabernacling over them, which brings to mind, it should bring to mind this image of the tabernacle in the wilderness in the Old Testament. Right? When God delivers his people from the power of Egypt and he's taking them on route to the promised land through the wilderness... He says, I want to be near to you. I want to be present with you. So build me a portable temple so I can dwell with you. So I can be in your midst as we move through the wilderness, this dry, inhospitable, unshaky, uncertain place. If we were inside, I might show you pictures of the Judean wilderness. And when I got lost one evening hiking through the judean wilderness uh, as the sun was going down a little un- uncertain the scariest part about it was i was concerned i wasn't going to be make it back to the hotel for dinner this great dinner buffet that was coming but we did we made it through that's a story for another time but you know you think wilderness this inhospitable dry place right but so imagine a scene you're the wilderness, you're the israelites journeying through the wilderness. And there's this portable tent, this portable temple that's going with you. And the first time it's constructed, Moses prays over the thing. And then the glory of God and all of its brilliance descends from heaven and just lights up the place. And my guess is if you're there in the wilderness in that moment and you see the glory of the Lord fill this tabernacle. You're not so worried (laughs) about you know, the dry, barren landscape around you, or you're not so worried about the wild beasts that might be roaming in the hills or the enemies that might be lurking. You used to see God's glory fill this tabernacle. You're probably thinking, okay, as long as I'm within the courts of this tent, this is the safest place to be on the planet because the glory of God is here, right? And that's the picture. Around the throne room, God is tabernacling about his people. His Shekinah glory is covering them In such a way that he is a shelter for them. In such a way that they feel no more the scorching heat from the burning sun. Or they feel no more the pains of hunger or thirst. Or they have no more tears. Did you pick that up? There's no more tears. There's no more sadness left because God has wiped them away. And they feel no lack or they feel no want or they feel no pain and discomfort. Why? Because the lamb in this ironic twist has become a shepherd to them and is shepherding them to pools of abundance and goodness and grace. In other words, you put this whole picture together. And as, yeah, the world becomes something of a shaky place. And we move in history towards the great day of the Lord. Well, what happens to God's people in between there? Well, here it is. They're sealed. And they're kept. And no mounting pressure. No evil temptation. No default deficiency in their heart. could ever keep them? from God's love, his purposes, and his promises. And one day those promises will be fulfilled. And one day we will gather with all the company of God's people from every people group, every language group, every tribe, every tongue, and we'll be gathered before the throne, waving palm branches, celebrating the victory of the king, crying out, salvation as an overflow of joy, mind you. Salvation belongs to you who sit on the throne and unto the land. And together we'll experience the rich comfort of the shelter of God's presence and the abundant goodness and graciousness of the Lamb as it's being poured out upon his people. That's what happens to God's people. Though all hell break loose. And so look, if you're here and uh, if you're curious about Jesus, if you're curious about Christianity, you're considering following him, and if you're here and maybe you, you sense, at least in, in, in even just a small way, your need of him. Maybe you, you sense that the world is a shaky and uncertain and tumultuous place, and there has to be something transcended. There has to be something deeper that I can stand on. Or maybe you understand that some of that tumultuousness is going on in your own heart and life, and you maybe you need to be delivered from that as well, too. If you sense in any way your need of this Jesus, well, the invitation of this passage is to entrust your life to him. It's to believe that he has overcome the powers of sin and death such that he can now atone for everything that is not right in you and he can guard and keep you. And so it's an invitation to entrust your life to him, to believe that and to receive in faith, to receive in faith his, spe- his seal and his spirit. To claim in faith, because of that seal the great promises that are yet in store for god 's people, for the people that he loves, right, and for everybody else if you 've entrusted your life to him, if you are intent on following him, then uh, the simple point this morning is, I hope that question has been answered for you, right if you press deeper into the kingdom and if you choose to you know maybe live more faithfully. To the mission that you feel God calling you to or to the purposes that he has for you. Or if you feel this conviction to live more like Christ in all of his sacrificial love and generosity. Or if you feel that conviction that I need to deny myself more and pick up my cross and follow after him. And if Satan would be whispering into your ear, yeah, but what happens if you do that? What happens to the things you love? What happens to the things you cherish? What happens to the things that you look forward to most in life if you press deeper into the kingdom? I hope you're getting a good answer to that this morning. The question, the answer is if you have entrusted your life to Christ and you have the spirit upon you, you have been sealed and you can know for certain that you will be kept not from, but through whatever comes and you will be kept for this glorious inheritance that God delights to give to his people around his throne. That's sort of the end of the sermon. <laughs> but I just want to give one more little tidbit here. One thing that I really like or I was thinking about uh, with relation to this passage uh, towards the end of the week is I just, and this is what Revelation does, it's a fun book to just to kind of soak in I don't know, maybe meditate on or just kind of like immerse yourself in these pictures. And I just love that scene of people having come through who knows what, anything and everything, trial and tribulation of life. And now you just gather with all the company of God's people. Past, present, and future from every tribe and people group, like in one voice with a loud voice singing salvation belongs to the, to God and joining with the elders and the four living creatures and singing blessing and honor and praise and wisdom and might and thanksgiving be to you sits on the throne and to the lamb, right? And it's just a beautiful scene. And I was thinking about how, okay, because of that seal, because of that unshakable guarantee, Like We have every right to bring that into the present a little bit because it's as good as ours. We're not there yet, but we have every right to bring that into into the present. And I don't know, this is just encouragement to keep gathering together, doing what we're doing, and worshiping and singing and enjoying fellowship and life together. Some of that stuff that we see happening around the throne. When I was in high school, there was a movie that came out. uh, Amy and I, we started watching it after college. It's called Swing Kids. Anybody ever seen the movie Swing Kids? Oh, wow. Classic? (laughs) You can count on Raj to have seen it. Yeah, it's good. It's a movie, uh, you know, over in Germany at the time leading up to, I think, World War II when, you know, the Nazis were inscripting all young boys to be a part of Hitler's youth, right? And as a resistance movement to that and as a resistance to you know, the the coming warfare that they could see or whatever. Like th- there was this group called the Swing Kids that got together underground secret places and they would just play swing jazz music and they would sing to it and they would dance to it together. And it was their own act of defiance against the powers of warfare and violence and bloodshed and all that. And actually there was a conference at uh, University of Southern California a couple years ago where they actually walked through multiple cases in history where as an act of defiance to injustice and warfare and brutality – People sang. They sang a lot. If you can think about Martin Luther King, you know, in the company of, you know, black individuals and, and African Americans walking from Selma to um, in uh, in Georgia, uh, uh, whatever. When they're walking over that bridge and they're singing as they go, they're singing "God will take care of you" or they're singing "This little light of mine" or all these great Negro spirituals. Or you think about. Yeah, the African-Americans who were brought over to work forcibly in, you know, slaves in the plantations. And what are they doing out in the fields? They're singing these great Negro spirituals that are pointing them forward to this unshakable hope that they were claiming in faith. Or there's, man, there's story after story, but there's a neat one, uh, you know, in Leipzig, Germany, back, Leipzig, Germany, back before the fall of communism and the fall of wall, you know, the great wall there in, in Germany. Uh, in St. Nikolai Cathedral, the priest on Monday nights would open up the cathedral and invite people just to come and to pray and to sing. As an act of passive resistance to this communism that they were trying to get, right, or that they were living under. And soon more and more people started coming to this until a couple weeks into it, two, the whole place was filled. 2,000 people were there singing and praying. And then the weeks later, uh, you couldn't fit in the cathedral anymore, so you had to move out into the square until several weeks later on the one of the Monday nights, there were 70,000 people just gathered outside the square in Leipzig, singing and praying together as an act of peaceful resistance. And actually the police and the guards were there, and you know, some of the local authorities said, why didn't you get in there and squelch all this opposition? They said, well, we had no contingency plan for singing. Right? Throughout history, like, people have gathered to sing and to celebrate as an act of resistance to all the brokenness and the shakiness and the tumultuousness of life. And I don't know, for whatever reason, that was the picture I'm coming away from the chapter left. Like, how do we bring that glory of what is yet to come gathered around the throne into the present? And I think we can do that because it's It's been sealed. It's as good as ours. So it's just a reminder, man, when we gather and we sing songs of Christ's victory, and we sing songs of his promise, we sing songs pouring out our need for him, well, we're singing truth to one another, but we're also singing in defiance of the powers of hell that would dare to shake all creation and dare to shake the church and knock us off of our feet, all to say that our worship together our shared life together, where we enjoy one another and we minister to one another and we pray for one another, encourage one, all of that is this powerful act of resistance that enables us to stand. It's a vehicle of God's grace for us. His sustaining grace by his spirit, enabling us to stand until that great day yet to come. So the simple prayer for you this morning is that God would lead you in confidence of his power to keep you. And in that confidence, give you the freedom, actually, to live out from under the threat of an unshaky world and live more deeply into his kingdom, his mission, his purposes, and who he is. All for his honor and glory in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.